Welcome to MotivationAddict.com with Julie Salon. This is where you will find inspiring stories on how to motivate yourself and gain momentum towards success, turning fear into confidence, and how to find divine flow, allowing you to crush your goals. Thank you for being here. And now, let's tune in to today's show. Welcome, everyone, to Motivation Addict. Today, I have an amazing guest. His name is Jared Surf. He is a professional journalist, a content strategist, coach, and writer, and he loves to tell stories. It's pretty much what he's done since he was uh, very, very young, like two or three years old. He was always writing. He created Here Be Tigers, T-Y-G-E-R-S, the book and the podcast series, and now it's a personal and professional coaching site for the folks who want to take powerful moments from their own lives and their characters' lives and transform them into tales that inspire. I think you're going to love this one. It's different from other interviews I've done, but it's an amazing way to learn how to tell stories. And I think you're going to love the inspirational process that he has behind all that he does. So enjoy. Don't forget to like and subscribe and hope you love this interview with Jared Sir. I remember years ago, my roommate, Bill, second, second, my roommate, Bill, sophomore year, he was thinking of having a career in web design and coding. And he would be sitting in one end of the room, meticulously tapping away. Mind you, this is back in the era where JavaScript didn't color code all of your coding on mm-hmm. the page. Mm-hmm. You would uh, track and you, you would perfectly know and note where everything was and would be in case anything broke. Mm. So here he is making sure every colon's in the right place, every slash is there, everything's perfectly situated, embedded, and, and lined up properly. And I'm looking at him going, how can you do that? It's suddenly <laughs> arcane and finicky and requires so much finesse. And he looks at me in my handwritten notes on my <laughs> short story as I'm adjusting the rhyme in the meter on a sentence. <laughs> and we are doing the exact same thing. The difference yes. is... I hate what he does and what I, that part of the creative process and writing drives him mad. Isn't that funny? It's so funny how people can be so in tune and doing something that seems very similar, but yet so far apart. And, and one can't see how the other one could do it and vice versa. It's amazing to me. It's crazy. Sure. Fundamentally, it's the same experience. It's yes. a question of whether you love it or not. Yes. Yes. And you have to love it because it's a process. It's mundane. It takes time. It's intricate. Um, and oh, sure. I mean, you work with animals. They are willful creatures. <laughs> most of the time. Sometimes I still go in and they don't want to talk to me. It's, it's really funny. They have their days, but most of the time, yes. <laughs> yeah, And it's a the, one of the best lessons I learned or I was reminded of, and it came to me through a strange avenue of all places. But then again, if there's one thing I've learned as a teacher, it's that you should be open and receptive to lessons from everywhere. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I have, we do these storytelling games for one of our podcasts. And again, players perform a role. Those things are separate. I'm being, I am performing a character who is not me and we are trying to discover or create a story. But again, willful creatures, they have minds of their own and the story as it is, is not something you, the narrator, control. Mm-hmm. And the sooner you realize that and decide to instead step back and go, okay, what is it that we're trying to make here? What can we find? What is the joyful thing we're creating? Mm. You begin to find, you begin to, as my, one of my mentors, Gabriel Pina would say, surprise yourself and thus in turn, surprise your audience as well. 
I love that. And it's all about having that open conversation and being open to, to information and ideas and flow from not only yourself, but other people around you and other beings around you, whether they're two-legged or four-legged. And I think that's, that's part of the problem is that so many people are not. They're just either an A, not tuned in, or they're not open. Uh, and that's, a, that's two different things, right? The most, definitely, the most fundamental element of poetry, this is my mentor, Jim Reagan, he said, the hardest part of being a poet, beyond the recitation, the memorization, the rhyme, the meter, the language, is simply being aware. Yes. Just sitting down in a park and actually, or truly genuinely opening yourself up to who and to what is there, to observe and to know, to feel that. And mind you, he was deeply of the school of concrete poetry where you ground someone in the particulars of the experience of the moment and lead them to that realization. It doesn't have to be at the end of the poem for sale, though often it is, but you, you do lead them to something that is not entirely a concrete experience out of the shared moment you're creating there. Mm-hmm. I love and it, it's, you know, we're talking literary theory, but the, it's, it's a fundamental little bit of narrative experience. And it's why I think listening to, for instance, the humorous and literary, you know, I'll be honest, I'll call him a literary essayist as well, John Hodgman. He, in his podcast and also in his shows, always says specificity is the soul of narrative because those particular moments or experiences, the smell of a flower, the feel of grass beneath your bare feet, those are what we relate to as we're talking to someone else. It's a, I'm a storyteller, so I often tie things together as I see how stories connect. I was talking to Ty Carter, he's an illustrator, and he said jokingly that he likes to make illustrations to manipulate people into feeling things, and then later admitted in conversation that that wasn't quite true. What he was actually attempting to do was to evoke what he felt in those moments in his life through his illustrations, so that in effect, you were being brought or you were entering into his childhood, into those experiences he had had. And walking through the feelings that arose within him and arose within him in those moments. Wow. Wow. Which is exactly what you're trying to do when you're writing, right? You're trying to bring someone into a place, whether it's real or imagined, that you either experienced or would like to experience, or perhaps not, depending on what you're writing, but we're all trying to get there together, or you're trying to bring that person through oh, sure. through Fictional, the story, which is so cool. Fictional or not fantastic or ordinary and ordinary is such a such a wrong word to describe the every the everydayness in a story the everydayness of a life in a story because i think if you if you go through and actually look and for instance at the movie stranger than fiction where the premise is that an author is narrating a man's actual life and he doesn't realize that Hmm. if you look at someone's everyday life you'll find the extraordinary moments within that Right. And you, you just have to, again, as the poet would say, be open and receptive to, their, to that. And I think, uh, to be fair, I think you can go too far. I'm not a huge fan, for instance, of the Henry James school of thought where every fleeting thought has to be recorded on the page. No, I don't subscribe to that. <laughs> I, I do. I think as any creator should, you should exercise a certain amount of editorial <laughs> capacity. I agree. <laughs> it's an art form. It is a medium and it's something to be experienced. Right. And I, I've mentioned George Saunders before, but he comes out of that same feeling where Saunders had to, had to realize on his own that art 
is not just about the craft and the beauty. It's about the experience. It's about the thing someone feels when they encounter it. And if that is not joy, wonder, fear, awe, if it's not, if, if it's not something immediate arising within you, then you as the artist have forgotten to do something. Right. Connect. Yeah. To, yeah. to take what is in your heart and provide it for someone else, provide it to make it available and, ex- and a thing to experience for someone else. Because the, as I like to say, the story doesn't come to life until someone else is there to find it. Right. Right. So, and feel it too. Right. Absolutely. And you, you as the creator have no, absolutely no control over what that moment is like beyond their initial encounter. And sometimes it comes from the strangest places and the strangest people. There, there are times when I'm writing something and I'm thinking about the person that's going to really consume it and feel it and connect to it. And sometimes it comes from someone I never, ever pictured. <laughs> that person. Isn't that funny? I, the way that happens. The thing I realized running these storytelling games and as I returned to my, to my own work and to that, the work of my students is that and this is, I suppose, a certain school of thought writing because there are there are different ways to go about creating any piece of art. And I don't believe it, that any of them are inherently the better. I think you have to find which approaches worked the best, I should say. I think you have to find which ones work well for you mm-hmm. and modify them accordingly, which is why I generally try not to, in my own educational practices, have the model the thing you do to get where you want to go. I instead say, for instance, with storytelling, there are truly three things you need to know. You need to know your world and character. You need to know your world and your characters. You need to know where your tale begins and how it will end. And you don't need to know all of those things now. But if you can write down even one, you'll discover the rest. Right, right. That's the fun part. I mean, it drives, it drives you crazy and you can pull your hair out, but that's the fun part is the whole process of, of changing it and, and weaving it and, and creating it. Oh, sure. And within those three steps, there are a myriad of ways to go about doing each of those. You can, for instance, as Sid Field would say, create whole character biographies, histories from birth until ch- through childhood, through parenting, through whatever leads them up until the now of their life in the story. You don't have to, but that can be useful. And part of the reason Sid suggests that is part of the reason Sid suggests the character biography is that it provides you with a wealth of detail from which you can pull in a given moment to show who they are and give them depth and understand why they're doing the thing they're doing now. So mm-hmm. I the best the best and the hardest thing I had to learn because I was a short story writer, I was a poet, and then I decided to go into grad school and pursue the actual art and craft of novels and screenplays, which are different things. I knew, I knew how I wrote a short story. I hear the voice of a character, I hear the voice of characters, I see what they do next, and then third or lastly, the world around them. And with a short story, that takes maybe a month, right? Yeah. You, you get that initial bout of dialogue, and in the case of Here Be Tigers, the seed was very simple. My writing teacher, Jason Ockert, walked in one day and he didn't believe in modularizing and turning writing into various modular experiences. He said, if you're going to write, you're going to write. So I'm going to give you a prompt and you're going to write. Then we're going to break down what worked and why and what didn't. Wow. Okay. You're going to fight. So I'll help you 
refine your structure, find your voice, but we're not going to pretend that this isn't, a, this isn't the act of creating a statue each time you do this, big or small. Right. So he would walk in every day, every day of class and he would write a prompt. And it could be anything. One, one day was you drafted. That was the entire prompt. Do with it what you will. Wow. I forget the exact prompt on this one. I think it was something simple like, you're a building. <laughs> so again, an exercise in imagination. I am not a building, but now I have to be. What does a building feel like? Does a building feel? How does it observe? What, does, what is the experience of things within inside of it? What would be important to it? What would matter to it? And again, just trying to think about how that mind would work that is not your mind. And the first thing I started writing was this church as it burnt down and its final thoughts in that moment. I have no true idea where that came from, just that it was the first thing I saw. And as a way to get around writer's block, I think he always suggested pen to paper, can't take it off, have to keep going, and scratch nothing out. Mm. Gabriel Pena also for, enforced that rule during the drafting process. So whatever you wrote was what you wrote. And then he would randomly pick, you'd share, and people would react and comment and ask questions as to why. And the first thing I wanted to know after I wrote this little paragraph down and inevitably got picked to read it was how did it burn down and why? Who set it on fire? Because if a building's on fire, something or someone did it. Right. Yep. So what's the motive? Who's the actor? What's the agent? What's the means of doing that? And I started to see this little family, Adam, and at that point only, I think, father and mother, which, as he quickly pointed out, was annoying to read because Cap F title name, Cap M title name aren't people. They're tropes. They're, they're mechanisms to make people recognize this is that type of character, but they're not people themselves. So find who they are and give them names or whatever that character Adam calls them by. Right. Mm -hmm. And that took a while. And I, true to form, this is with my, uh, my roommate at that time, Bill, we were in the same writing class. So we'd always share and bounce ideas, but the hardest thing we both found was coming up with titles. You write a story, but you had to have a title or you couldn't hand it in. So here I am writing about this church in a valley with a kid who's maybe a foster child or the father's taken in the mother and the child. It's not quite sure. I wasn't quite clear at that time. And the small community in a mountain, mountainous valley, or in a, in a valley surrounded by mountains. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking through and looking through going, what do I call this damn story? And finally I said, oh, okay, the valley, because I have to hand this in in five minutes. <laughs> Ingenuity. <laughs> exactly. I have no idea. Ironically, this is not too dissimilar to how I came up with the tagline for the Kirby Tigers. Which I want to know about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Remind me. Okay. Uh, so I, I write down the valley and then I have this one brief moment. I guess this is, if we're talking foreshadowing, this is the foreshadowing for Kirby Tigers. This one brief moment of hesitation where I sit down and think, but why the valley? Why is it in a valley? And then I think and go, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow, Psalm 23. Mm -hmm. So I load that up on my browser and I side by side the short story with the psalm and I read through the two together. And every line is evoked somewhere in that story. Somehow. Wow. 
Wow. So the parishioners walking down into the valley as their shadows stretch out across the hills. Wow. And I said this to my roommate and he goes, yeah, that's how you write. Didn't you realize that? Wow. Wow. (laughs) Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't realize it because sometimes I don't, I don't realize how I write. I don't really know if there's a rhyme or a reason. I guess I kind of, we all have our own little way, but did you real did you realize it at that point? No, not consciously prior to that. No. And I think the greatest amount of work when in any creative art or process in which you're making a thing is the greatest amount of time, I would say actually, is spent. I was passive. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I self-edit sometimes because I also think aloud. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> the we spent so much time doing and making and creating things. But we forget that we have a certain amount of influence and control over how we approach that, what our process is like, how we spend our time doing that. And if you become, if in my case, I'm becoming aware that my subconscious will feed motif and metaphor and depth if I trust it to, it will lay down the things for me to find if I trust it too. And this means I have to now trust my own creative impulses, not edit them, not question or challenge them when they're arising, because quite often, as Sid Field would say, it's a half-formed idea. You have to let it live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you cannot choke the life out of a thing before it has had a moment to breathe. Right. So let, let the idea have its moment in the sun, its day in the sun, its day in the light, let it turn into a flower, whatever it is, then decide, but let it live. So I learned over those years through college and as I was working in PR, marketing, and social media to train myself, to go on the trail, to take a recorder with me, to capture my ideas as I would speak because I talk much faster than I write. Mm-hmm. And that these methods would allow my mind to step out of that, edit, that, that editorial critical, brutal, this doesn't work, that doesn't fit, I don't see how these go together, state of mind, and instead slowly begin to find who else was inside there that says, yeah, but what if? Right. What if, and that looks fun and delightful, why not that? Or, huh, I wonder I wonder what that means, or could this be, if this, and here, this is a thing I always catch my students doing too, we want to talk about generalities because these things are precious to us. So like little gems in a purse, you want to keep them hidden away just for you to look at and the shine in the light. Yes. And I, in my case, it's because there are so many times this has occurred that I'm not even sure which ones to share. But there are, I think the most, the most vital one, honestly, occurred late in the process. I, in grad school, that was when I honestly began to, or earnestly, honestly and in earnest began to write the book. And like short stories, I thought, you know, it'll take time, but not the time it would take. Mm -hmm. And a year went by, two years went by, I got a draft down, I graduated, it was terrible. But I wrote 450 odd pages in eight months and didn't revise a line. It was terrible. I I have not looked at it since, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to. I, I, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting the day when should I get, should I receive rewards? Someone will walk on stage and go, "Oh, look what we found!" <laughs> uh, 
it's like if- everyone's been there everyone oh, yeah. i've got stuff i i found today that i was like oh i can't even look at this Ugh. because if i look at it i'll want to revise it but it's not even the tale anymore so that's irrelevant the- right right and what i told someone the other day they said well you're still writing the book and i said you know what no I'm not writing that book anymore. I wrote that book and I wrote two more after it. And the book I'm actually writing now is my fourth book, but I had to write those first three to figure out how to write one. Yeah. Because there was so much, I found the voice the first time, I saw what they were doing the second time, and finally in the third, I discovered the world. Same process as the short story, but it takes a little longer when it's a long narrative. Wow. And for a long time, I had this huge omnibus of a book that had three major arcs that, God, nobody would want to publish. It's just a massive risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're easily 1,000, 1,200 pages. Wow. wow. Right. And I'm a businessman too. So I, as an investor, I'm going, right, well, how do, we, how do we make this a thing someone would want to take a piece of and then say, ooh, I want more. Right, right. Me, the next thing. Yes. And the editorial point of my mind looked and said, you know what you don't have? You don't have a proper ending to what would be the first arc, what would be the book there. Mm. So I set about trying to find the ending. And that's a long story. I won't share the entirety of it. But (laughs) the most critical thing I learned or reminded myself of there is you cannot force creative insight. You can feed it, you can sustain it, you can provide for it, but you have to allow it and give it time. And that means sometimes letting go of expectations like a chapter a month. That means all of these things we often learn in the business world of set these schedules, these deadlines, these timelines, if those don't actually, if those don't truly feed your creative process, set them to the side. Because for me, I would be caught up in the, this chapter isn't done yet. This line isn't right yet. This beat isn't the, is missing here. And it's a, it's a hamster wheel. You just run in circles because it's safe. It's perfectionism. It's something you're familiar with. You're not escaping out of that. Right. These, are, these are all little traps we create in our minds so that we don't have to deal with the things that are – that we don't have to deal with uncertainty. But let's, let's talk about I, you, you've mentioned every time I talk with Jared, and by the way, we just jumped right in, and I, I know I'll have a, a beginning to this, but Jared served from Here Be Tigers, and I sat with him at the New Media Summit, and we happened to sit next to each other and started chatting, and uh, I've been on his, pod, his podcast, and I want him to come here today because he's so insightful, and every time I talk with you, Jared, you don't know this, but I take notes down because, <laughs> because you're a teacher because um, you just give me so many gems and me being the amateur writer that I am and always have been, something you said really, really stuck with me and I wanted to go back to it if you wouldn't mind. And that is the, the brutal mindset that we have as not just as writers, but as people um, of the, the work that you do and you can't, you know, choke the life out of something before it takes a breath. So as a writer for the listeners out there, even if you don't write, this can relate to ideas about where you want to go with your life. And you're kind of sitting there thinking, well, I could do this or I could do that. And as relating to writing, I have always learned to just write and just dump it out, right? It doesn't matter if it's, we don't care about grammar. We don't care about any of that junk. It's just getting the idea out there. And what I thought about was, how many of us have the brutal mindset that we're all walking around, whether it's writing or just of life, and we're cutting things off at the knees 
and we haven't even given it a chance. You know, it kind of pops up in your mind like, well, I could do this. I might be good at it. Well, no, that's no good. You know what I mean? You haven't even really given it a chance to even breathe yet. Absolutely. And to kind of frame what you've been listening to, I'm in that creative state right now, which is why I'm not on any kind of linear path. Mm -hmm. What I had to learn from my own experience, and this is different for everybody because you're your minds work differently, but I'll get to kind of the, a couple of fundamentals that are, that are in general, the beginning, the places we begin. But the first thing to note is you're listening to me in a creative state, which is why I'm not in any kind of linear ABCD point right now, because I have trained at certain points in the day, my set myself to expect and to prepare for a certain way of looking and seeing things. In this case, I usually write right about now. So I will have in my, I will have read things that are narrative oriented. I will have watched a television show, gone through any type of set of notes I've created about a character that I want to explore, listen to music quite often that is relevant in terms of tone or feeling, anything that evokes or feeds that state of mind for me. And I have learned that for my own work, I need to capture the audio on that and then listen back to it. And that I found was, so in the case of people who like me are often called scatterbrained because we don't think linearly. Me too. (laughs) It's useful to find some way to capture your thoughts that is non-intrusive, that is easy to carry around. I have a small handled recorder for instance, or if you want a just a little portable notebook, pen and paper, anything that lets you anywhere you are, capture those thoughts and ideas down without, without or minimally disturbing other people. So for instance, not taking your cell phone out during the middle of ragtime <laughs> to jot down the idea you have during the middle, during the finale of the first act, right? which right. I've done. <laughs> I, because again, if you don't capture it, then you'll lose it. And it's never the same try, trying to Take that half-formed idea, let it grow, and let it grow. That's a different experience than trying to remember where it might have, where it was, and what it, where it might have been going when you're half an hour, an hour a day past that. And so, thank you, Julie, for kind of being the editorial mind on this one because <laughs> it's helpful. So, where do you, the fundamentals? I think if you don't take anything else away, take these. First step to listen. You need to learn to listen, not just to others, but to yourself. You need to hear yourself. You need to hear how your mind works, how you see what you feel, what about that is helping you, what about that is hindering you. And if you want to make a Venn diagram or even just split a page in half, as you start to observe your own habits throughout the day, these things lead me to being aware and compassionate and capable. These things make me frustrated and want to go away and hide and close my mind off to what's around me. Mm. Powerful. You need to understand, not just in the generic sense of, I don't like loud noises, but okay, I want silence. Okay, sure. How much? Do you find a cafe comfortable? Do you find the trail great? Do you find what is your sanctuary? What's your little place you can be in that's yours and how can you create that? For me, it was the trail. For me, it's, this is a weird one, but I hike on the trail, right? The things that are constant on the trail, mud, rain, sun, snow, you're usually filthy by the time you get off of that trail. And I didn't think this would be the end or the capstone of my creative process, but it's kind of its own sensory deprivation chamber. You stand in the shower and suddenly you go, Eureka. Mm -hmm. And 
I think partly in that case is because you're so stripped away from anything else you could be doing, you're just there. So it leaves your mind to wander as you ritually clean or whatever else there. And after like the third or fourth time, I was standing in the shower, washing the mud off, going, wait, this beat, that beat, oh, that's that character's motive. This is why that scene happened three chapters before, which leads to this moment now. I wish I had something to capture that down. Right. right. And it seems insane. Why in the shower? Okay, fine. That's silly. But you know what? If silly works, do it. So mine is when I'm working out. And it's, it's always not when I'm lifting. It's always when I'm you know doing my cardio. Like, and it's probably because it's mindless and I don't want to be there and my mind wanders. But I have the best ideas. And also when I'm driving, which yeah. uh, I do a voice memo really quick on my phone because obviously you can't. You can't type it in. So I'll just do a voice memo because those flashes of brilliance come at those strange times. But it, it, it's typical. Like I've, I've nailed it down. It always happens. So I guess what you're saying is true that if you just pay attention to it uh, and then if you expect it, it'll actually get better, I would think, and magnify, right? Absolutely. You, and I'm not – to give you an idea of where I'm coming from, I used to suffer a tremendous amount of writer's block. I would go on the trail. I would spend three hours revising a sentence. Wow. Because it just wasn't right. And it wasn't just the sense wasn't right. I couldn't find the feeling there. The story wasn't moving forward. I had to, and that's aggravating. That's immensely frustrating to dedicate so much time and not get anywhere, regardless of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, but I put so much effort into it. I tried so hard. You can, you absolutely can. That doesn't guarantee anything other than that you try hard. Right. that you won't have learned anything. It's, it's not a waste of time. It's never a waste of time, which is the other part of that lesson, that lesson there. You have to work on the listening to yourself and to everyone else. You have to learn how to separate those two moments out there. You have to allow time for yourself. And you have to accept that you won't always see the progress at first. I, one of my students I started working with recently, B, you'll hear her on the, uh, the Outer Worlds podcast later this year, as we help her create the world for her fiction story. When I first started talking to her, she said, I don't enjoy writing anymore. And I said, B, how old are you? And she was 18. Oh, jeepers. And I'm thinking, okay. Oh, okay, wait, hold what, on. <laughs> I, know, I know you have a fiction story. We're not going to work on that today. We're not going to work on that today. Because you'll never finish it unless you find joy in it first. And this is why I say listen. Because... You will hear that delight in yourself if you allow yourself the t- if you allow the time to find it. I asked B to do a simple exercise. I said, "Okay, I want you to find an artist whose work inspires you, and I want you to take a media that you're terrible at. In your in my case, I'm awful at watercolors. Mm-hmm. When I'm deeply depressed and I don't feel any type of creative verve." I will take out my watercolor set and I'll paint because I have nowhere to go but up. Right. I have no expectations. I have no real desire for a certain outcome. It's just, okay, I'm going to create. Let's see what happens. And that's liberating. It's freeing. So here she takes, I think it was paints and flowers, and she does this small piece, most of the sheets gray, and just a little bit of beautiful red flower at the top. And I asked her, why mostly gray? And she said, 
because that's where I am right now. But I want to do this again, and next time there'll be more flowers until finally the page is entirely just the red. Mm. I want to be able to see how I'm growing. Right. And I said, did you find joy? And she said, absolutely. It was just so amazing to, to see that I could still create. And here I am trying to find the end of my book, the end of the first book, trying to find a title because I had a working title, trying to find all these things to get me to where I need to be. As I think we often do, we decide on where we're going to be and they say, oh, well, I need this and that and that and that and then fall into the pit of, well, how do I get that? How do I find it? How do I, motivation, money, time, energy, space, relationship. How do I make time in my life for all of that? And the answer pressure, is- Pressure, pressure. <laughs> the answer is you don't make time in your life for all of it. You make time in your life for a little bit at a time and then you, you build from there. You start with, and I've told this as I've coached people who are depressed, your little victories. You take one thing at a time. And in my case, I had to find joy in the story again. I had to find the thing I delighted in. And (sighs) I realized I'd been fighting myself for years with this story. What it could be, what it should be. I like to write grounded narrative in the character experience, what they see, what they feel, first person. If things are fantastic, they're fantastic. But that's never been my interest. And my friend, Nick Laurie, is a neuroscientist. He said, for years, you have to let go of that. You have to stop trying to make the story what you want it to be Mm. and just find it. And I went to his wedding in Lisbon a few months ago, and I told him how I found the ending and out of that, the beginning of my story and the title as well. Mm. And... Very simply, I had told people as I was working through all this that there are, in this fictional world, three kinds of folks. There are everyday people like you and us, and then there are those who dream too much and those who are too full of fire, both literally and figuratively. And at the beginning of the prologue, Adam, his mother and his father, Joseph and Layla, parents are in a fight. He's standing in the snow. His mother comes outside to retrieve him. They go back toward the the old church, the sanctuary of the house. And his father is walking up from the pond with this mud-covered box that he hands to Adam and says, you cannot open this until we leave. I have to know what's inside the box. Me too. I'm sure the reader does too, because if it's, it's, it's a classic Chekhov's gun. If it's there, it's there because something's, it's there to provide story it's there to reveal character move to move the story along or it's not if it's and it has to be big because otherwise why would he say that right it's got to right. be big why would it be buried in a pond yeah and here i am walking on the trail going well what's in the box that has i have to know because i have to write the knowledge of that even and how people act around that knowledge or the lack of that into the story Wow. And here he is cradling this box to his chest and it's a little warm inside. And Adam takes it from his father and he feels that warmth. And I stop on the trail and I go, well, it's his heart. It's the kid's heart. And of course, I'm thinking that that's impossible. He'd be dead. Right. You can't take the heart. And so immediately here comes the editorial mind tromping along. Right, right, right. No, that's not allowed. These are the rules. This is the way things go. This is life this is reality this is how i perceive things this is these are my expectations they cannot change it's bullshit right 
just it's your it's it's coming your you can make the story what you want it to be which is why at the conference I said we all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. What we forget is that we have the power to define them. That's right. Because here I am writing a fictional narrative, but what do we do in our everyday lives? We do the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. This is my life. These are the rules. These are my expectations. Nothing can change. Wow. So here I am. This is the story. It's not fantastic. It's not any of these things. It's just by negation, it's nothing. Until finally that little voice says, but what if it is his heart? And if that's possible, what else can happen in this world? Right. Dragons, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, actually, you will be happy to know, not quite dragons, but something like. Yay! And not, and I was a kid, a huge fan of fantasy. You know, I've got my mobile dragons and the, cut, the big paper cutout ones. There were a lot of things I cast aside, even for the younger fans, like giant robots and earlier iterations, which if you listen to the podcast, I'll get around to talking about eventually, because now it's terribly embarrassing to look at those notes. <laughs> the, the thing I had to learn, and I remember listening to Ray Bradbury as he described having his attic full of toys, his things that delight him at 93 still, because they inspire him. That's amazing. I looked and said, but what if it is his heart? What next? Right. That moment, or what's possible then? At that moment, I begin to. Fi- I, I finally, finally started to find joy in the tale again. Wow. And not too long after, I started looking for an illustrator for the book, because as I started to see these fable-like, these fantastic elements arise in the narrative, beginning has a true fairy tale-like feeling to it and so did the ending which I, I won't share on the podcast although i'll tell you after if you like but that same kind of wrapping back around to the beginning we have to touch upon this whole kind of well okay i'll give a hint of it later on in the prologue adam and his father joseph get into a fight as they're in the study his father's translating these notes from some archaeological dig that he's been on not too long ago and it's this old ruined frozen kingdom buried in the north and partway through translating his note, this, or transcribing this note and trying to figure out what it says he, and asking his son for help, he kicks the kid out of the room. And Adam is puzzled as to why suddenly at this moment I'm not supposed to know anymore what you're working on. Right. Well, like the, like the, like the box and what's inside, we have to find that kingdom, don't we? Yes. That old frozen kingdom in the north. So the very end of the book, there we go. Adam arrives there. Wow. And I will say this. The thing that I struggled most with in the book, Adam wants to revive those he's lost. In any narrative, you encounter one of two possibilities, ultimately at the end. You want to do a thing, you can do it or you can't. And either can be true. It's a different kind of narrative, right? So either he learns at the end it's impossible, or he finds out that it isn't. And there's a second book, so there has to be something that falls from that. And I knew, I knew in the second book, he was going to try one last time, which means right at the end here, something, despite the entire narrative telling him no, something has to provide him with a truth, a little possibility, a little what if, that this might be or could be again, that he could revive, if not everyone, then someone, that he could try, right? Right, right. Who would he believe? Who would he believe? What proof could there be? Mm-hmm. So here he is walking through this kingdom, walking down through this old frozen tomb guided by this ancient ancient woman who's almost like a witch. And as I'm narrating it, I can tell it's someone narrating it like a fairy tale. 
Yeah. I realized it's his father writing this down as if it were a story for someone to read wow. in his notes. And so the prince and the and the, the witch walking through the ruins of the old frozen kingdom down to this tomb. And there on this tomb, the burnt out trees and carvings of white wheat, everything that Adam had seen in a dream in, a prolo- in the prologue, she leads him down to what should be buried there and to what he finds. And I won't say anything more there, but wow, that inspires him to try one last time. And here I am now in Lisbon telling this to Nick and his fiance, and he looks at her and he says, I told him 10 years ago, 10 years ago, to let that happen. Not that thing, but just to let, let that be possible. That's weird. Let it be, let it be fantastic. He says, thank you. Thank you finally for listening. Wow. I had to let go. Which is very hard for a lot of people, and especially in the creative process, because so many of us, no matter what medium you are great at or you practice, we are so hard on ourselves. We have the, the sometimes the perfectionism, sometimes the people pleaser, sometimes both, and it's just really difficult to try to let go and just let it be what it is. I, it took me years to figure this out, but I realized part of why I would stumble so often on the trail there, why I would be so obsessively focused. I was trying to create and to edit at the same time. That's I difficult. Said, difficult. I, right. There are two entirely different ways of being and viewing a thing you're making. And I said, okay, I'm going to try something radical. The days I create are not the days I edit. Hmm. I'm just going to allow this day to be a day where I go and find a thing and have and ask myself, because I'm always afraid, I'm always afraid every time I go on the trail that I will find, learn, discover, know nothing more than what I have when I first take that step. And when I take that first step. And that fear is probably never going to go away. But I also know from experience that if I can step into that, if, I, if the next step, the one after, can be toward joy, toward finding the thing that I will discover, the delight that comes from that. I will get to wherever I need to go that day. And it won't always be what I expected to, which is still frustrating. I, I talked with my mentor the other day and said, I want f- chapter 15 to be done. And she goes, so let it be done. Mm. She was, and I went, but, but it's not just let it be done for now. You can right. always go back and edit it. It's not going anywhere. But if you're not enjoying working on it, and if it's not getting any further along, then maybe you've, you know, tell me what it is you're trying to do. And I said, well, there's this, there are these four or five beats. There's this is choreography to a scene. And she goes, is that something you do in the creative process? No. Then why are you doing it in the creative process? Oh, <laughs> there you go. Sometimes you do need someone beside yourself to ask the question you should be asking yourself. And that's why these podcasts, these shows, these conversations are helpful. That's why it's also good to have friends inside or outside, but just people to go, I know you. Why are you doing the thing that doesn't work for you? It's so hard to see the forest through the trees sometimes and we're in the weeds and we're trying to make everything perfect. And Mm -hmm. it's so much easier to have someone outside of you to look at it topically from 30,000 feet and say, well, gee, this is, and it's sometimes, usually it's so simple. We make it harder than it is. It's just, as I said, just let it be, you know, let it, let it, let it live, let it be. You can always edit it later. It's not going anywhere. Right. Just like those old notes. Absolutely. The, the, the delight about letting go is this, and this is 
So if step one is listen and record, understand, step two is let go. Let go of your expectations, let go of your beliefs, let go of anything that hinders or doesn't allow you to grow. Hmm. Just stay and be there. See who you are in that moment. Don't assume you know. Because right. I, I don't know if you ever talked to Eric Nevin, but there's a wonderful story he shares about this moment before he's about to go up and give his first presentation, his first, I'm th thinking of the wrong word there, sermon. And the, the, frame, the framing of this is the first time he hears the voice of God. And here we are all thinking, okay, the voice of God, it's going to be Moses on the Mount, booming message. Right. And then he, deliver, then he tells me what God said to, says to him. And the, I, I will not spoil it, but I was laughing. I nearly fell out of my chair because it was not at all the kind of <laughs> message one would expect to receive from God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's the thing we want and believe, or here's the frame we're walking into this, and suddenly, nope, the world is bigger, weirder, and larger, and stranger than that. Then you even know. Then right. You even know, yeah. Which is why I say, when, if you truly want to see things, set aside what you're going into that moment with. And even, I say beliefs, because those two can change. You have to be open to what is there in order to see how you can grow. Right, right. I was looking for an illustrator and I, the story is written in an unusual way. I'm also a poet and I didn't expect that to influence the narrative style as much as it did, but it did. And I found this artist in Germany and I looked at her work, which is fantastic, phantasmagoric, but also deeply grounded in just the everyday life of characters, the humility of that. So this is real juxtaposition between simple beauty and the horror, the fantastic alongside that. And I looked at her, I think just her opening pages and said, I've never, I've never seen anyone who illustrates what I see in my mind as I write. Wow. I want to work with this person and set about trying to get in touch with her. We've been friends now for, God, I think almost a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. But finally the day came when I could ask her to do an illustration for me. And it's from a scene in the prologue. I asked her which one she wanted to do. It's the dream sequence, of course, because why not take the biggest challenge? Of course, yeah. The most surreal thing in the beginning of the story. And it is. And this is for a little piece of advice for folks who want to write the surreal. Grounded still in the details, in the specifics, in the experience. It may be unique. It may be weird. But what is the person or the character feeling there? What do they see? What is the sensation again of the grass or the wheat beneath their feet? What is, let us be there with them. Mm -hmm. so she takes this scene and we start sharing notes back and forth. And when she sends me that first, just penciled in draft, there's, for Adam, his, one of his motifs is that of the, is the tiger. If you look Chinese astrology, he's the tiger. I, I tried many things to figure out who my characters were. Astrology was one of them, but that little weird cliche thing became truer over time. So I mentioned that to her and she puts this illustration of a tiger in the upper right corner of the, the illustration, which is the painted version is what you'll see on my logo, what you see on the business cards and on the site. But I see this penciled in version. I look at her and I go, or I look at it and I go, when I was two, I think I told you this one, when I was two, I used to love Winnie the Pooh. So my parents were in the city. They, we lived there. They, 
had a cake made with Tigger and Pooh on it, and the little Tigger tigers on the cake looked just like the one she had drawn. <gasps> wow. And I, I never told her that. Wow. I never mentioned that to her once. And I thought, this is weird and unusual. So I, I mentioned it to her in the next email. And she said, well, there, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Are there any other influences, like my roommate so long ago, anything else where the tiger emerges here? I said, I'm not sure, but now that I think about it, let me pull up Blake's Tiger Tiger. And I did. And like so long ago I had with the valley, I opened up the prologue Safer, which is a Hebrew book. Because at one point, what's in the box is a book. And I'm looking up tiger, the tiger, 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 burning bright in the forest of the night. And I'm reading through it, and I'm reading through the prologue. And again, there we are, line by line. Wow. The images in the page. And that was two. That was twice now I'm seeing the tigers in the narrative. The third time, the story has two, has two protagonists, two narrators. One tells the past, one tells the present. Connor, as a kid, gets into a fight with his siblings, has to live with his mother. She walks up to the attic where she's refurbished, refashioned into a little bedroom for him. So by the window over there, the what is that called? Not the landing, but that place where you can sit by, by a bay window or an attic window. I know what you're talking about, but I, f yeah. I forgot the name of it. You see it in a lot it's of not enclave. Enclave. No, yes. I'm, no. I'll remember it later. Okay. So that gets converted into a, into a little bed there, pillow on one side, blanket. She sits down, and I see her walking again. I'm on the trail, walking into the room with a stuffed animal. And I ask myself, right, but necessity is the soul of narrative. What animal is it? It's a tiger. But why? Wow. A little stuffed tiger made of plush and velour velvet, and I can never remember the last fabric, but with out of anything she could find with no two stripes the same. Just whatever she could make that out of right there in that moment that she hands to him. And she, in this little moment, begs him dearly to not be the monster that he is sometimes and to let the tiger be that instead. <gasps> and when he asks why he's receiving this, she says, it can eat feelings too. And she says, you know, because he says tigers eat people. And, he says, and she says, yes, right, but stuffed ones eat feelings too. And like every kid does, she, he asks, how do you know or why? And her reply, like any parent who's exasperated by her limits, is because it just does, because I know, because it's magic, because I say so. Right. I'm, you know, I am making this little piece of mind magic here for you so that I can live with you in my life. And it's weird and awful as I finally realized in that moment that here is a woman asking her child to not be the monster he is sometimes, and he grows up with that. And here is Adam who was raised from childhood believing he's always the monster and not knowing that he can be something else if he tries. And that dynamic, the two tigers, as it were, I sat down at that third and went, well, okay, I need to decide on a title. If you look at a map, they're often from, I think about 1400 on here, there'd be dragons here, there'd be tigers. It is a phrase to describe the horrors beyond the known world the things that are just past the places we want to be that are not safe anymore. So here be tigers. Mm, wow. Taking that leap into the unknown there. And when I had to name the podcast, I had asked my friends, is it okay if we sit down and just talk about the writing, talk with other people about what they want to create and how they do and why, and their struggles with that. Mm -hmm. Their stories, their own lives. We, 
again, some of this is fiction. We've had webcomic artists on. We've had folks suffering from schizophrenia. We have a, a graphic modeler on as our next episode. And in between that, I workshop my own story with friends too, as I struggle with, okay, what is currency like in the world? What is it like to actually create a small village in which a whole portion of the narrative occurs or a big, a big city? And how to find and populate that and make it come to life? Because I think it's important to see and understand that the creative process, that the process of making anything, making your business, making your story, is messy. It's weird. It's complicated. You don't always know what you're doing. And that's all right. 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 The take life by the tail. Like with the valley, I sat down one day as I was working through everything I needed to do to have the podcast, and I needed an outro, and I needed a tagline. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, take life by the tail. It seems like that could work. I could see it on a t-shirt. Let's try that. <laughs> and then when it came time to pitch at the conference, I let that be there, and people loved it. And this is why I say listening is so important. Because, again, you can tell your story, you can make your story, but it doesn't live until the moment someone else finds it. Wow. So true. I'm just thinking about the card, because I have the card. And and also, what people, not only when they find it, but how they interpret it, right? It's so funny, because I was talking with somebody yesterday, and she's she's a marketer, and I have a background in marketing. And one one idea... I, she had for something and then I gave her my thoughts and my thoughts were completely, she said, I never thought of it that way. And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about, but like, it was so different. So it's, I think it's incredibly insightful to not just when they, they realize and they see it and they connect with it, but every person actually gives that story or even a tagline a thought process and a life of its own. So that tiger can look a million different ways and a million different versions to every single person, right? Oh, absolutely. I the the thing about a story, the delight of it fundamentally, even one you're sharing about what you did that day, what you what your business is about, people will fill in their own experiences, their own joys, their own expectations, their own feelings and desires, and to bring that to life. That's just part of how we understand and make a thing our own. And I think it's, excuse me, I think it's important to to realize that when you tell or share a story of any kind, you are helping someone create something for them. You're helping someone create a thing for themselves, an experience that is their own. Mm -hmm. Right. I think often when we see people fighting about what should be the story, the canon, the experience of a narrative, we forget that there is the piece created, but there's also what happens when you experience it. And no one can, no one can take that away from you. I, Go ahead. No, I just, I want people to, to realize the power in that, that you own your own experience. You can and absolutely should own it of your life. When someone tells you that you shouldn't feel a certain way, that is them trying to give you a different story. And yeah, they might go toward that with the best of intentions. You look depressed, try feeling happy. Or here are things you could do to feel happy. That's frustrating, I find, because 
it's not an acknowledgement of the thing you're owning. It's not an acknowledgement of the story of the story you're experiencing in that moment. They can help you tell another one about yourself, things I can do to make my I may be unhappy in this moment, but let's talk about this next experience, the little victories we can start building upon to go somewhere else. But that's a different narrative. Right. The first step though is to be is to acknowledge and to own the thing you're experiencing though. So that's that's why I just wanted to kind of hit upon that and remind people, make sure and understand and own what you're feeling, what you're trying to tell. It's so powerful because that's where, that's where your power comes from. Because when you let someone else have that power, then that's not your story anymore. It's not you anymore. Right. The It's mutated into something completely different because it's not really their story either. So now it's, it's something else altogether. So I guess being true to your feelings and, and empowering yourself that it's okay to feel this way or think this way and imagine things happening in your life and visualizing them and then creating the story. Cause, because stories are not just written down and on TV there and movies there. We all have stories of our life, as you were saying, and how I perceive myself and you have to give yourself that power, like that you can create it and it's up to you how you want it to resonate. You can't, you can't let it, this is hard. You can't, you can have it be your story, but someone else can take, take it and they can feel it completely different, but you have the power in your own life to create your own story. Right. Which is why often in character creation or fleshing understanding character, we have the character, the who you are, characterization, how that's expressed. And then the next step, which is how people experience that. Mm-hmm. Those can be entirely different stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. I tell myself one way of who I am. I show it another way and people see it through a third yet. And there might be overlapping threads between each of those. But here's even on a fundamental, a simple one, fundamental level, a simple one. For many years as I was recovering, I would wake up every day and say to myself, I'm tired, which was true. I am tired. Mm-hmm. But eventually that becomes prescriptive. Yeah. Yep. I'm tired. I feel tired. I'm going to stay tired. And finally, one day I said, okay, yeah, I'm tired, but I can do this anyway. I can do that anyway. Or I still have the energy to. I had to take that narrative that was turning into habit and make it again my own thing to create. Okay, sure, this is how I feel, but I am still capable of the things I want and need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because what I realized in that simple two-word statement I'm tired. I was denying myself the capacity and the ability and the desire to do things. Right. That's depression. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. That's so I don't want folks to listen to this and think I'm just talking about the, the story you pick up in a book or a tablet. We, we are always talking to ourselves about who we are, what we do and why. And we need to understand that on one level, there's a truth to the feeling and the emotion, but we also need to know that we lie to ourselves or we limit our we limit our capacity by setting certain expectations and then not defying them. Mm-hmm. So, so again, step one, listen to yourself and to others as well. You need to hear where those two stories are aligned, where they're discongruous, and then ask yourself why. If it's in fiction, it's often a split between who you as the creator, or even nonfiction, who I as the creator 
want this to be and what it, the direction it's going toward. We, we had an exercise with one of my students the other day, and she had these scenes she absolutely wanted to be there because they were big and important and dramatic. There was a, it was a commencement speech she wanted the principal to give as this character was walking into this new dystopian future from this rural childhood he'd had with his own horrors and encounters with that world prior to that. And now he's walking into the capital city, the big academy there. And she wanted the commencement speech because she could see it and feel it as powerful. And there was a scene right after that as well. There was a strong character moment between the two roommates who would live together after this and push each other in through, through their, one's kind of the city, the, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this because I know she doesn't like me talking too much about the, the details of the story. Mm-hmm. So one is the suave city rat. The other is the country mouse. If we're going to go Prince and the Popper archetypes okay. there. <laughs> they live together and they will kind of force their beliefs and come into conflict over how the world should be as they live together and try to accomplish what they both want to do. And she had this scene after commencement where the two of them confront each other for the first time, or rather city rat confronts country mouse. And they were beats. They were narrative things. They were moments she wanted to have happen in the story. Just as we often tell ourselves, these are things I want to have in my day, in my month, in my week, for my business, my life, for my child. Yeah. Yeah. I want these things to occur. And then when they do not, or they do not happen the way I want them to, I get angry. We get frustrated. That's not the way this was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, I said, this is a lesson I'd learn. Everything happening in the background, that's all still alive. Those are all still people with their own days, the lives in their minds. All of that is not you, but it is all as alive as you are. So, okay, if this character, his roommate, is going to find him after he walks out of commencement, where else has he been through this day? Where else in this school in the city would he be going about his own life and if he's truly that interested in finding out who his new roommate is and why and setting the rules the expectations for how their life is going to be would he not start cropping up in those scenes because this is a webcomic as the roommate is or as the main character is going about doing what he's trying to do mm-hmm. definitely so that we as the reader begin to realize this fellow here in the background isn't just a background character and he's showing up more and more trying to watch the main character. There's something happening outside of the screen, outside of the camera's focus. Mm -hmm. There's a life and a world beyond our eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. It's something we spend so much time teaching children to do. And then as adults, we forget. Mm -hmm. Because life becomes so complicated and immense. There are so many things to prioritize that we forget that everyone else walking down the street driving has that exact same challenge. We do. We do. And we tell ourselves stories about their lives too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to jump. I know we're getting late here and I, I want to be mindful of your time. I'm dying to ask you this. And do you watch Game of Thrones? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I have absorbed <laughs> it through osmosis, but I know there's been huge <laughs> this last season in particular. So I'm a huge fan because I love dragons and I love that whole genre. I just... Uh, you know, after so many years deeply involved with the characters, and I remember the Red Wedding. I don't know if you know what that is. 
um, but a lot of characters died and people were just, if you watch YouTube, they're horrified and they're crying and they're upset. And so uh, this last season was very much, everybody was looking for the crescendo and it was just such a downer. And <laughs> uh, the, the main character, Daenerys, who I absolutely adore because of course she's the mother of dragons, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being killed. I can say all this now because obviously everyone knows, uh, you know, it was just kind of like, she was doing things so uncharacteristic of herself. And I felt like just everyone did. I sure, you know, as you know, there's a petition and um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but it just felt so quick, kind of sloppy and just not what anybody was looking for. So I was just curious to know if you were, had seen it and if you had any thoughts on it. So this is, this is fairly common in franchises that go on for a long time or a long enough time or have enough seasons. And somewhere, I can't give a set amount. There's, there's often the joke of season of the season three itis where things plummet, but the, the more of a dedicated fan base and a following, and it's become more common now with the internet and people being able to actually express their opinions, not just to the showrunners, but to the voice actors or the actors, the illustrators, the animators, mm -hmm. any, anyone and everyone who has a public face who is involved in the project. Yep. Yep. Can encounter the fan base and hear from them and their will and their desires. And I think part of it goes again to what I was saying, where you, you have to own your experience of a thing and understand that that's yours. No one can take it away. So yeah, there, there's a reason Fanon, F-A-N-O-N, has become a term versus canon, C-A-N-O-N. Mm -hmm. Is what the fans believe or a set of fans believe to be true can differ from what the creator of the story believes to be true. What your friends to believe or your employer believes to be about true about you, your clients, your coworkers, is not necessarily what you think to be true in your life. Same divide. All right. The other factor you're looking at here, one of the other factors you're looking at here is that these are collaborative works. There is never a single hand in the deciding factor or the deciding in the decision-making process that has overwhelming authority, or I shouldn't say never, there's rarely a single deciding vote, but rather a series of competing little ones. It's, Less, for instance, like and say the mayor of Los Angeles who for many years had the only actual vote among a council of peers, then it is people with equal or equally valid say providing their input into why they think a thing should be a certain way. Mm -hmm. And if that's run well, it can make something fantastic. But then you've got to look at factors like how much this costs to make, how many expectations there are, and how impossible it will be to satisfy all of them. I... I was talking with a friend the other day. There's a series from my childhood, which I did not care about at all, called Voltron, that they remade into a more or less a fantastic, really grounded kids through adult series on war, sacrifice, genocide. You know, your everyday seven and up kid show. <laughs> I honestly didn't expect that to be any good at all. But I've been surprised by other things like the Peabody Award-winning Avatar The Last Airbender. And, you know, as a storyteller, I will read stories from pretty much anywhere if I think they're good to learn something from them, what they do well, what they don't, and why. And they encountered a similar problem, which is that in this case, they created so many characters, as with Game of Thrones, that no one was ever going to be able to write all of their stories hmm. and provide all of them in that screen time. Right. There's just too much world to have in the show. And 
I think we're encountering that with J.K. Rowling, too, where people are starting to think, maybe maybe we don't need to know any more about the Harry Potterverse. Yeah. The Potterverse, because the mystery is sometimes the better thing there. We don't... It's hard. It is honestly hard, particularly with a large cultural phenomenon, to say, this is the end. Right. Or more. Right. I... I'm reading a science. I'm reading a fantasy series by Tad Williams, who was a fantasy author who inspired George R. R. Martin. Oh, wow! Others, yeah. Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. He wrote in the '80s when I was an infant, and his sequel to that is set decades after that initial series, following those same characters as parents and grandparents, and the world in the direction it's going then and crumbling down as they fight with their children. And. On the one hand, it's a joy to go back. On the other hand, I sometimes wonder if I would have been happier not knowing. <laughs> I, but I say these things because, again, a story is a thing that's alive. Right. It's going to live, it's going to breathe, it's going to die. Right. You have to accept those three truths. And what, what you do with it, what your experience with it is like is yours to decide. I, I can understand the, un, the angst and the frustration. There are things that happened in series I've watched or books I've read where I put it down afterwards and went, you know, I would have been happier if you'd spent those hundred pages truly giving me the rest of the character's story in life up until the thing you decided to do with them as opposed to the abrupt look at a dramatic moment. Right. I, let me ask you, is it specifically Daenerys and how she died that hurt that bothers you the most? Uh, yeah, because I think that she was such a main character and her dragons. And I think that she was so big and larger than life. And I feel like the uncharacteristic things that she did were trying to make her the mad queen. And it was so uncharacteristic of her. It, it just, it just felt very rushed. And I guess everyone thinks of the, the ending, you know, everyone has a different thought on how the ending would be. I would have been happier if she had conquered and not if everybody had died and I could have been left hanging and, you know, I thought, Oh gee, this could have happened. You know, that could have happened. So it's just hard when for me, the lead, it's just kind of like in the walking dead when I'm watching that, just go to something really funny Mm -hmm. like that. When they, when they killed off one of the lead characters, I was like, I'm out. Like I'm done. I I know he he just held so much weight with the whole storyline with everybody involved and all of the stuff that's going on there's usually one or two characters that really carry everything else. And so when one of those goes, it almost feels like the footing on a house, like just eh, it's falling down now and I can't buy into it anymore. It's just like the fantasy's gone. I don't know. It's Have you seen, this is a very old movie now. Have you seen The Last Unicorn? The Last Unicorn? No, I don't it's think so. Who was in that? Okay, so this is, this is Peter S. Beagle's adaptation of his of his book into his into an animated play, uh, animated film back in the early '80s. Rankin and Bass, who also did The Hobbit and a number of others from that that era. Uh, see, Alan Arkin, Christopher Lee, Tia Leone, no, Mia Farrow. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. Angela Lansbury. It's a the reason I bring it up toward the end because the story does play a lot with the expectations of fantasy in particular. Toward the end, they're going to defeat the, the Red Bull, the monster that the King Hagrid, Mr. Felice, has raised to destroy and drive all the unicorns into the sea so that he can delight in watching them trap there forever as his own precious, precious little treasure. They're, they're going to confront the Red Bull, and Molly Grew, 
ass of Schmendrick the wizard. Do you think this is, do you think there's going to be a happy ending? Or do you think they'll have an unhappy ending? I forget the exact phrase. And Schmendrick says, there are no unhappy endings because in real life there are no endings. And I think that's one of the, there's, or there's no true ending. You just decide that a thing is ended. Mm. But think life as the whole goes on. And that's one of the differences between fiction and everyday experience. In fiction, the ending should be inevitable. Whatever it is, you should feel that sense of finality that this is the culmination of how things are going to be. If Daenerys does die at Jon Snow's hands, for instance, that should feel right. It doesn't have to feel good. It's fine if it doesn't feel good at all, but it should feel right. It didn't feel right. Yeah. And that's the the other element you have to ask yourself there is, okay, if she's turning into the Mad Queen, does that feel like an extension and an evolution of who she is, or does that feel like the writer's hand dipping into the well to guide it? And that's what I felt. It was it was the the writer's hand. I didn't see that because she had tried so hard for so long to protect people. So, you know, even if she had a little moment there, which I kind of even didn't buy into that, but I just felt that it just didn't feel right to me. If, if um, you know what, if Cersei had killed her, that would have felt maybe right. Or even Arya, that would have felt, yeah, I can see that happening because she's got the training and I can totally see that. She got the Ice King, so the Night King. So, you know, I can see that, but I just felt it didn't feel right to me. And I guess that's what bothers me more than anything. It felt like somehow they shoved a classic <laughs> fantasy story into the, into the, into the ending. Where she suddenly, a really great death and she didn't get that. And that's what made me mad. It's a, I think it's tough too when the most, one of the more, the most or more dynamic characters is the one taken out and it doesn't feel like the time is there. Or the, and, you know, this is, this is something we experience in real life because people can, People die suddenly. People are changed or altered permanently suddenly sometimes. And we don't get those feelings of this being right. I, I've had to survive quite a number of those moments in the past few years. And I think it's partly why we like to go to our fiction, our stories elsewhere, the ones people create, to experience that. Just to still feel like there is, if not destiny, then a sense of things going the way they should. Right, right. That's something we'll all struggle with in our daily lives. We can try and try. We can tell our stories. We can refine them. We can go toward the things we want to accomplish. We can try to survive. But there's no, there's no guarantee to any of those. And I think, let me ask you, did you identify with Cersei more, or pardon, with uh, Daenerys more yeah, than the others? Of course, because she yeah. rides dragons and I love dragons and I talk to horses and she's doing something completely different and crazy and great. And yeah, more than anybody. So that's probably another reason why is I, you know, when you identify with a character and then you almost see yourself in the character, then you're in, you're, you're all in. So um, it's hard. I just thought that from your point of view and on, and what you do uh, a lot of the, the writers were getting a heck of a lot of kickback that it was very rushed. It didn't feel right. And everybody said that they just didn't feel like Aria. That was a crazy spin. And it was amazing. It was like, you know, this guy killed everybody. He couldn't, he could not. And yet a little, a girl, just like the giant, the uh, other young girl kills the giant. It was just incredible. That felt great. I mean, it was kind of like 
wow, that's a damn good death right there. You know, I didn't see that coming. And it's just so, it's like, yeah. I think this is how, this is how I'll break it down. When I say it's the writer's hand, it could just as easily be the producers too. It's the, we don't know whose decision it was an ultimate, an ultimate, but somebody on the creative end pushed for that. So the thing I would say, if this were coming up with my students in class, because we all, I think, struggle with, okay, how do I make this moment happen? The big, powerful moment, or even the little, subtle, quiet ones. And a lot of folks subtle with, struggle with the little, subtle, quiet ones because they think those aren't powerful too. The, the simple talks, the moment sitting together on a beach, discovering or realizing something, often has as much emotional or narrative weight as the, I got a car, I beat the Dragon King, mm-hmm. I, I win the war. And those little victories are important. The the thing you have to ask yourself when you're pushing toward these big changes, these big dramatic bombs, as it were, that will result in a world where nothing stays the same. Mm. You have to listen to love and care for your characters. Not You don't have to hold on to them like they're precious. You have to let go of them because that's the thing. You have to be willing to let go of any of them in that moment. But you have to be willing to follow who they are and what they're doing and why. And to the end. Yeah, whatever that might be. That's and how I feel, yes. I, I have been times when I have been writing where characters have done and said things that I think are awful, absolutely awful. Just they're not moral, they're not the right thing to do. But they're what they decided. I, I use this example often because it's one I, I, as a writer, wanted to change. I wanted this to not be the thing that was true. But I listened and looked at the character and realized, no, that's you. And it's not in my right from the way I write to change that. This woman, Dolores, who was commander of a military troop, ordered a village burned down. And later on, she has a few of the survivors she's raising as, fo- as some of her foster kids. Inevitably, like any Chekhov's gun, one of them finds out that those orders were hers and confronts her and asks her why. And I had thought going into the scene that she would take these children in as a means of redemption, as a means of finding herself, as making up for what she had done. Mm-hmm. So here I am writing the scene. There's been a physical fight. Things have been torn up. The, the teenager now is furious and is yelling at her. And she very calmly looks at him and says, because you remind us sometimes that we're terrible. Mm. And on the one hand, yeah, as teenagers are wont to do, they love telling their parents you're awful human beings. So that's part of that truth there. He's always going to tell her when he doesn't think what she's doing is right. But he's also a complete and utter reminder that sometimes she's an awful person. And she doesn't want to forget that. Mm-hmm. She doesn't think or feel like she would have done anything differently, but she doesn't want to forget it either. And that, that hardness to her surprised me. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she has this fair amount of compassion to Dolores, but the, that here in this moment, that is the, the thing, the truth she would reveal. Because you remind us that sometimes we're terrible. Wow. I, I had to sit back and go, okay, this is, this is the truth. This is who you are. I That's who she live. is. That's who she is. I have to live with that and see yeah. what comes, what happens. Right. 
And I don't know, I cannot say if and when that happened, when they were writing the show, and if so, who decided for or against that. I think, like any craftsman, we can screw up, we can fail, we can stumble. Mm-hmm. I don't, not every one of my podcasts is perfect. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes me a while on a show to bumble through to where I'm going when I've got a thousand other things in my mind. Sure. And that's all right. That's really the third thing is you have to absolutely forgive yourself and others as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the ultimate thing here is you can, in your mind, look at this story or look at what other people do with their lives and how they decide what to do and feel righteous anger, frustration, and rage, or, or joy, depending on what it is, <laughs> at that. <laughs> But whatever it is, you have to forgive and let go. All right. Well, that's the I, hardest part of all. When you're, you're, you're invested, after so many years, you're invested in all those characters. So what I would say to you, and mm-hmm. take Daenerys and make her your own. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to do, make models of her, go on a dragon riding expedition, whatever that thing is to make that character your own, because who she is as a character, what she means to you, they can never take away what that helps you realize about yourself. Right. That's the beauty of it right there. None of that. So here's, I guess we'll kind of come full circle. I'll leave on this note with the conversation today. I love Patrick Rothfuss as a fantasy author. I hate how he ends his books, but that's just me. He wrote a short book called The Slow Regard of Silent Things where this young woman, Ori, who sees the world in a very strange way, spends seven days preparing a gift for a friend who's going to visit her. And in her mind, everything has its own life and there's a world that has its rules that she cannot disobey or everything will fall apart. So you could easily, on one level, read this as someone with deeply ingrained anxiety and perhaps some other issues as well. And Rothfuss is terrified when he wrote the short story that no one would like it. He even confessed this, as you can read in the codice to the book, to a musician who was sitting at a bar with him who had read the story. And she goes, you know what? F them. Those people who don't like the story, I do. And no one has ever written a story for me before. Wow. So even if no one else likes this, you gave me something I never had. And that's awesome. Yeah. I. That's awesome. You we can see the fans screaming and crying and tearing their hair out because they don't like how the tale went. But I think you have to, and my illustrator encounters this too. You have to keep your eye open. You have to listen for the folks who are saying, thank you. I never had this before. And now I do. So true. So we had the whole journey. So that's amazing. Jared, I can't thank you enough for being here. You're fascinating to talk with. You're so articulate. I just love talking with you. You, uh, it just uh, where can people find you, reach out to you? Sure. So the site will be up soon. That's Here Be Tigers with a Y, so T-Y-G-E-R-S.com. Mm-hmm. And that will have the services, the things I do for people, I help you find your story or decide on what comes next. If you want to follow the book I'm writing or the workshop I run on the weekends, that is at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Here Be Tigers. And I'm always delighted to have more students. We tend to run a set of small classes, fiction, nonfiction, whatever you're trying to write, any age. 
Our youngest student is 18. Our oldest is in their 70s. Perfect. I'm on Twitter and Instagram too, but I have to actually be on those things again. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to have all the links below for you to check him out. And I would really urge you to, because he is somebody who can really help get your message and your story, either your own personal story or the story that you want to craft out into the world. And he's, he's just really fantastic at it. Thank you for being here, Jared. I can't thank you enough. I, I love chatting with you. I thank you for giving me the time. And I thank you for giving the listeners some of these gems that they can incorporate into their own lives and helping me find a little closure on Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's a, this is often what my friends and I do when we experience narratives. We have to kind of recover from them afterwards. <laughs> it was a little morning time on that one. So I think Thank so. You. Part of that is just saying goodbye. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jared. I appreciate it. I will have all the links down below. Everybody go check him out, check out his workshop and his sites and all his social media will be there as well. Thank you so awesome. much, Jared. Thank you. Awesome. It's wonderful to be on. <laughs>